We might be late, but we're worth the wait. It's time for the Nerd Byword to take a closer look at the Blue Beetle film. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 181 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are going to have us a little deep dive into the world of the Blue Beetle movie, one of the last DC Extended Universe films released. Uh, We'll, as always, look at three likes and three dislikes each before giving the flick a final grade. But before we get to that uh, bug-themed situation, it's time first for... All right, Chris, what's new? Well, I've been on a run here for the last couple of years of getting back into the WWE. And for my money, this is probably one of the best times to be a fan of professional wrestling. Um, If you are a fan of the more indie circuit or like the throwbacks to like WCW and Nitro, then AEW is right there. Not my personal preference, um, but but it is an option. So there is an alternative option. But right now, what they're doing in the WWE, man, it's cooking. It it is right up there with musty television of the Attitude Era into the early two thousands. Um, so I avoided this news story last week partly because I wanted to see how it all played out. So you have the American Nightmare, Cody Rhodes, son of Dusty Rhodes. Um, who won the Royal Rumble for the second time, uh, second year in a row. Last year, he won the Royal Rumble and lost to Roman Reigns, who is the big heel, the biggest overarching story with the Samoan bloodline. Um, And now there was an interference by one of the family members, and Cody's thing has been about finishing the story. Ever since he returned to WWE, Uh, He actually left and helped form AEW and then came back to WWE. So it was like this prodigal son returning, finishing the story. And the story is the title that Dusty Rhodes, his father, never won, which is the WWE, previously WWF championship title. It's gone through a bunch of different name changes. But the title that Roman Reigns holds is something that his father never accomplished. And so that's the be all end all. Um There are two different titles in WWE now. There is the World Heavyweight Championship, which is held by my personal favorite, Seth freaking Rollins. And so once you win the Royal Rumble, you have a choice between the two. And after winning the Rumble, which your boy was there in person to witness, uh, he specifically pointed at Roman Reigns as he won and said, I choose you, Roman Reigns. And so everybody was like, all right, book it. Let's go. Cut to, uh, as of the time of recording, last week, last week Friday's uh, SmackDown, where Cody says in a promo to Roman Reigns, I'm coming for everything that you have, just not at WrestleMania. I've been taking counsel from several people, and one of those people knows you very well. And The Rock's music hits, and they end SmackDown just by Roman Reigns and The Rock staring off. And that unleashed an unholy 
movement on social media, hashtag we want Cody. Uh, Monday's Raw did not do anything to quell those. It was hard for the performers, Cody included, to get through their mic work on promos because of fan chants and Rocky sucks and booing the rock. And uh, it, it was a, it was a hot mess. Social media was crazy. The Rock's daughter, who is a GM, uh, a front office person on NXT, which is their developmental brand, received death threats and removed her Twitter account. It was absolutely insane. And then the cut to Thursday, where they had Super Bowl week, uh, Las Vegas, a press conference. Millions and millions of people tuned in to a press conference, Dave. There were no matches. It set a record to watch a press conference to see how all of this was going to settle out. Um, And they leaned full into The Rock as a heel. And they were doing this whole thing where it was going to be The Rock versus Roman Reigns to see who's the real head of the table, who's the head of this bloodline. Like something that you could have written cinema about. And then Cody comes out and says, I choose you, Roman, and everything, chaos ensued. Everybody was insulting families back and forth. The Rock slapped Cody Rhodes. And it's must-see television. So I'm glad I exercised patience because here we sit. I have no idea what's to come, WrestleMania, although it's been confirmed that it will be Cody versus Roman. How does The Rock play into this? He is fully leaning into this heel persona, which... If I, I don't know if you remember, Dave, that's when The Rock was at his best, was the heel and making fun of people and really digging into people. So I'm hyped, man. Yeah, as somebody who has uh, been out of the loop of the pro wrestling business for a while, you know, I only have fond memories of, of The Rock um, a, as a wrestler, obviously. Um, so I've, you know, been kind of trying to read up on the situation because when you see a huge backlash online against, uh, you know, what used to be one of your favorite pro wrestlers, you're going to you know, obviously be curious. And I think um, it, it's kind of hard telling at this point whether what they're doing right now is in response to the online backlash as a way of salvaging the situation or whether this was a work to begin with. Um, yes. As a, as a way of getting more, um, you know, more heat on this match and 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 yeah. you know more investment from fans in in you know in in Cody and and his his title chase here, um, it's it's very difficult to tell. Which is actually something I've really missed about professional wrestling. When crap yeah. went down and the lines blurred and you're not quite sure what's you know what's a work and yes. what's real. So I think that's really a, it's a fascinating situation, and it's definitely got me curious enough. Uh, to to maybe give this whole thing a look, um, I will say that uh, the backlash against The Rock is probably not unexpected from certain corners of the internet, especially what with what went down, um, you know, supposedly behind the scenes with like the Black Adam situation and him trying to get you know uh, pushing so hard for for Black Adam versus Henry Cavill, and there was I think a sense that. Uh, that the rock has gone sort of Hollywood diva a little bit. And so when he showed up in that moment that there was a backlash is probably really predictable because it feels like, you know, um, an old man is coming, coming from Hollywood back just to, you know, uh, take uh, somebody else's spotlight, which is in fairness, I think a pretty consistent issue in the world of pro wrestling and, 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 and at WWE, it was for a very long time 
where it always felt like certain people, no matter how old they got, would constantly be coming back and steal the thunder from young up and comers. That was a that was an underlying issue for many years, even when I was watching it. So I can understand why why the initial gut reaction would be, I can't believe this guy's coming from the outside in and is, is ruining a perfectly good storyline. Um I, I'm this it's it's difficult to say right now whether this is this was a work to begin with, whether they're swerving to, to and course correcting. Either way, it sounds like it's making for really good pro wrestling entertainment, which you know is the kind of stuff that that I've not seen in a while. Every time I've tuned in, I've kind of struggled to get back into things. So uh, I'm 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 curious. Yeah, I think um, there are a lot of people who say, "Oh, this is a pivot. Oh, they're caving to fans. Oh, they're giving fans what they want." I I don't know. And you know what? At the end of the day, who cares if it's a pivot? Who cares if it was a work the whole time? I think I th- I think it's a work, just my gut reaction. But at the same time, I could be wrong. Like, who cares? At the end of the day, it's must-see television. Um, and some some of the best stuff is, is kayfabe. Like, you know. Yeah, the fake absolutely. Stuff is, is when those lines are blurred. And when... When they can lean into it, man, because some of that stuff, it it really is just palpable. You can feel the tension. And there are, it's different watching pro wrestling now in the age of social media. And I don't know if you know, Dave, but like there are several blog sites and podcasts that claim to be those quote unquote insiders, the same type of people that break exclusives for the MCU and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You have people who are forecasting 400 different predictions because, oh, they have in the know sources in the industry. And I love just seeing kind of those people exposed for being the frauds that they are. Um, so th- that's that's an interesting kind of change in, in things because people claim that they know what's happening when they're like the rest of us. They have no idea. Um, but like I said, nonetheless... If you've got a Peacock Peacock subscription, you can watch all of these premium live events at no additional cost. And that was really the kicker that kind of brought me back in. And now this Netflix deal. um, And let's let's keep it. uh, Let's keep it 100 here. Uh, All of this, I think, is. Kind of a ploy to get the headlines off of Vince McMahon. And the god awful things that have come to light about him, which you knew as a kid growing up, he was an awful individual. But these details, man, are are incredibly shocking. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, somebody made an interesting supposition: is that evil Mister McMahon heel character? Now that The Rock is on the board of directors of TKO, the parent company to WWE that they just sold to maybe they're trying to recapture that authority figure gone heel that meddles and stuff like that. So maybe that's something we're going for, but nonetheless, like I said, must see television. It's interesting to me. We're talking about like, uh, you know, is it work? Is it real? Blah, blah, blah. You know? And, and, and one of the things that I always appreciated about wrestling back in the day, and, and that's, you know, fading more and more, I think is, you know, that it was this heightened reality that 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 kind of blurred the lines and you're never quite sure, right? Like people people who especially old school wrestlers were so serious about not breaking character and being very, you know like it, it blew my mind, for example, 
uh, looking at a clip online the other day, seeing that Triple H is now coming out and the little title card under, for his name says Paul Triple H Levesque. Like, no, you're Hunter yeah. Hearst Helmsley. Thank you very much. Like, yeah. What are you doing? You're breaking character. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really uh it's it's really a different it's a different age for pro wrestling in a lot of ways, I think. So um the fact that they have something going right now that kind of blurs those lines again, I think is really interesting. All right, Dave. Uh something that we were worried about several months back. Uh listen, nobody can be the heel that David Zaslav is right now. You're not kidding, man. So here we are again talking about uh, Coyote versus Acme, uh, a movie that uh, is a live action and animation hybrid movie that was uh, produced under the previous uh, Warner Brothers regime and ha- is complete and has been sitting on a shelf for a while. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery had actually talked about that they wanted to uh, shelf the movie permanently and take a tax write-off like they did with, uh, with Batgirl, right? Only Batgirl was like, you know, 80% done or something, like it wasn't complete yet. This sucker is just finished, right? Um, and in addition, this apparently, any, any everybody who's seen this movie for some, you know, screenings uh, has been really, really positive about it. Like apparently this is, uh, is a good little movie uh, according to everybody who's seen it. Um, and so there was a big um, a backlash sort of against Warner about this online and they decided that they're going to reconsider their stance and said that they would allow the filmmakers to try to shop the film around. And that was the last thing we heard for a while. And so there was big hope, I think, of of the people behind and in front of the camera and the fans as well of Looney Tunes characters that will actually see this movie see the light of the day. Um, And now it's starting to look increasingly like... um, it's not going to happen because Warner Brothers Discovery has sort of stacked the deck against people trying to to, to make sure that there is some kind of deal to release this movie. Um, according to The Wrap, uh, Amazon, Netflix, and Paramount all were interested in securing the rights to Coyote vs. Acme uh, and putting it under streaming services. I think uh, Paramount, uh, their proposal reportedly even included uh, a theatrical release. Uh, as well, which would be like an ideal situation, you would think, for uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. However, according to the rap, every one of those offers was not high enough for Warner Brothers Discovery. In fact, uh, as a negotiating tactic, I think this is extremely poor. Uh, Warner is apparently looking for 75 to $80 million uh, as a, a price tag on this, on this film, and they are not willing to... Um, entertain any counter offers so there's zero negotiation it's very take it or leave it um and although this movie obviously has a lot of positive word of mouth um and people who've seen it are, are generally fans of it uh that is a pretty steep price tag um and so uh warner's basically saying well nobody's willing to meet our demands so it looks like uh, unless there's some kind of 11th hour reprieve here that the movie will, in fact, just like Batgirl, be deleted uh, and a tax write-off will be their source of income, which is uh, absolutely mind-blowing to me, Chris. Uh, what what do you think of the situation? The fact that, obviously, that's an astronomical price tag to sell that off. So for me, that seems intentional. This is like setting the house on fire for the insurance money, except everybody's in on it and everybody knows about it. And what are you going to do about it? They are looking straight into the camera 
and saying, this is what we're going to do. We are bringing our evil acts into the light and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Because like one of the news stories I was going to go with is this Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan vampire film that I'm very excited about, but guess who acquired the rights? Warner brothers. Why do I want to get my hopes up and get excited for something that very male, very well may suffer the same fate. Like, this is one of the most iconic brands in Hollywood. And the way that it has been tarnished in super speed form is mind blowing to me. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of have like whiplash about how far they have fallen and in the name of greed. And like, I know that we all like malign, like the big evil corporate overlords and capitalism, but like you'd be hard pressed to find something that was this blatantly obvious yeah i mean it's it's so for for a for a company whose uh whole bread and butter is to create art they are the most anti-art company i think i've ever seen it's absolutely mind-blowing to me you know i not 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 to be you know overly dramatic here or something but imagine you know leonardo da vinci paints the mona lisa and then says i'll take 75 or 80 million dollars for it and if nobody pays me then i'm gonna burn it out back yes like, it's just it's just it's just mind-blowing to me like th- this is this is where we're at at this point with warner discovery and i think um and I think, in a way, as a huge DC Comics fan, this this scares the crap out of me, Chris. Like, number one, um, what's going to happen to these DC movies, right? I mean, are are, are they going to like pull the plug on these or cancel them or try to delete them because they're not meeting their expectations? And we're, you know, what happens? What happens to my Superbad Legacy movie? I have such high hopes for this thing. Um, but also, uh, you want top people and really talented people involved in these new DC movies, you know, directors and uh, with a vision and actors and, 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 and people that want their stuff released and don't want to spend, you know, a year or two of their lives working on a movie that's never going to be seen. Um, and those, those people are going to start thinking twice whether they even want to work with Warner Discovery. And so you, now you're shrinking the talent pool of people who are willing to even, even work on these DC movies. Um, I'm, I'm very, very concerned uh, about this kind of mismanagement um, and what it'll do to to those products. Listen, and I'm going to color outside the lines here a little bit, um, and I don't want to be overreactionary or what have you, but Bob Iger's comments uh, this past week about this, the state of the MCU and that they're scaling back and they're only featuring like iconic brands or whatever. I'm paraphrasing, but whatever so that that like the sun's not exactly shining at disney either when it comes so we may be at a point where superhero films indeed do take a downturn and become rarer um and 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 that could be disheartening those comments in particular concern me chris because yeah. it means that now they're becoming increasingly risk averse. The MCU yeah. exists because they took a risk on an Iron Man movie when the general public didn't give diddly squat about Iron Man, right? Dave, um, Dave, we had a we get the bleep button. We had a fucking raccoon and tree that were talking. 
we're not going to see that kind of risk again. Is what I'm is what I'm concerned about, Chris. Yeah. If we're only if we're only you know focusing on the big brands, then a Guardians of the Galaxy is is not going to happen again in the MCU because they're not willing to take that kind of risk to do something completely different, new, and off the wall. Um, everybody in the lead up to Guardians said this movie is ridiculous. There's no way this is going to hit big, and it was fantastic. I love Guardians. So that kind of risk averseness is 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 going to be very very bad. Not just for the industry, but I think for the for the niche of comic book movies in particular, it's it's going to be very bad. We're we're going to see a huge downturn in seeing interesting, off the wall. Like it's it's going to make it even more samey. We've been talking about already the fact yeah. that the MCU is tonally too similar from movie to movie. That they need to diversify, and now they're saying no, we're doubling down. That that that's a bad move for long term uh, brand growth, man. It's just a bad move. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's the old guard, like Bob Iger and David Zaslav, that is not the places where you go for innovation and for evolution and to grow and evolve. Like, we we, we need a changing of the guard desperately. We need young, younger people in these positions, people who care about art, like... And it's, and it's not exclusive to superhero films or series. Like this is a widespread thing. Like we, we've talked to, we're blue in the face about television series, like that can't make it past a season or two that have a collective of fans. Yeah, this is a mess, man. On that depressing note. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and take a quick break and uh, when we come back we're going to start diving into uh, the uh, 2023 flick The Blue Beetle so stick around alright ladies and gentle people we are back and we're going to be talking about the 2023 action sci-fi film Blue Beetle based on the comic book of the same name from DC Comics currently streaming on hbo max no wait i'm sorry it's just, just max. max these days <laughs> uh who can keep up with all these constant name changes um so we're going to just go ahead and dive right into this thing. Uh, both uh, Chris and I have selected three things we liked about the movie and three we disliked about the movie. A uh, quick tagline for the movie, Jaime Reyes suddenly finds himself in possession of an ancient relic of an alien biotechnology called the Scarab. When the Scarab chooses Jaime to be its sim uh, symbiotic host, he's bestowed with an incredible suit of armor that's capable of extraordinary and unpredictable powers, forever changing his destiny as he becomes the superhero Blue Beetle. Ah, let's dive in, Chris. What's the first thing you liked about The Blue Beetle? Well, first and foremost, talk about a movie that probably will not see the light of day if if these trends, like we talked about, continue. Um, su pleasantly surprised that this was actually allowed to release. I know that it did not perform well at the box office, and that is incredibly sad, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, what I loved about this movie, first and foremost, and overall the thing I enjoyed the most about it, was the family. I mean, like we, we are, we are simple to please Dave. Um, and the elements of family and that being the source of your strength, the scarab is all well and good. 
and that can give you a great little power set, but your motivation and the most important thing that drives you to be a superhero in stories like this is your family and those close to you. And I think this is right up there with Shazam, uh, right up there with Ms. Marvel as completely nailing the family dynamics um, and how it can be a source of strength, of motivation and inspiration for these characters. Yeah, see, I like the family theme too. And you and I have talked about this a lot. I think I think in this movie, although I really like the overall family theme, I don't think they, they pushed some of the family characters far enough to be really distinctive. Like when you look at something, for example, like a Miss Marvel, right? Like like her parents are are like characters that, that are so clear and well-defined that you can about sit there and, and just want to have dinner with them, you know? And although the, I think Blue Beetle did a really good job with the dad in particular, uh, he has some nice moments with Jaime when they're talking about like, you know, um, you know, picking themselves up and then still trying and, you know, they're going to figure it out and all that. Those were some really nice moments. But I, I felt like the mom got really the shaft. In the, the, ma- the mom was absolutely shafted. Absolutely. And, and and I remember very vividly, you know, reading the, especially that first run uh, Blue Beetle Jaime Reyes comic book, um, that the mom was much more distinctive as a character. So she got she got kind of flattened out here a little bit, which I thought was a, was a poor choice. Um and I think part of that might have been um, a function of expanding the family, you know, with uh, with George Lopez's uh, crazy uncle character, um, that there was just not enough time to go around. Um, but I probably would have preferred seeing a little bit more um, character, I guess, f- from the mother here. But other than that, I agree. I think I think family as a as a you know superhero background theme is always a really good idea it always rings even today because i guess it's been you know so many years that they've been running this trope but even today it still feels kind of fresh when the family actually knows that uh, a family member is a superhero and we're not playing the old uh you know secret identity trope into the ground uh, those kinds of things have their place in superhero comics but you know it's it's refreshing when they don't do it so yeah i i agree with you i that's that's like my favorite thing i think about a crossover a dc marvel crossover that i would do anything for you can shut up and take my money so what i love about miles morales and jaime reyes and if we ever got a crossover oh man i I absolutely love that. But yeah, I totally agree with the mom. She got the short end of the stick because even grandma, Abuelita, like got this cool kind of, she was a revolutionary, a freedom fighter kind of backstory a little bit. And it didn't take an overly long amount of time. The sister got some nice screen time. But in a movie that was already a tick over two hours, I think we could have carved out a little bit more for mom. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Dave, I really love this aspect as well. Yeah, so so interesting. Um, I, I'm I'm gonna go get to this topic in a in a roundabout way. But what what was the city's name? Pal Palmeria, Pal, Palm something like something like that. Um, I was kind of when I started watching the movie, it it rang a bell, but I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. Jaime is, is El Paso, Texas. Palmera Palmera City. This is yeah. It's what, very clearly a Miami kind of yes. Vibe. Yes. So I'm, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, why does this ring a bell and why did they make this choice? And so, you know, the more I watch the movie and I get like the, the, the production design, the vibe and what they're going for and, and Jaime's age, which, you know, the first one, he was basically a teenager. 
And I was like, wait a minute, I read a comic book kind of like this. And lo and behold, corporate synergy, right around the time that this movie was getting ready to come out, DC Comics released a Blue Beetle miniseries when Blue Beetle hadn't had a a solo for a while. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it takes place in this Palmyra city and it has the same kind of design, like very neon soaked kind of stuff. Um, it takes place at Ted Court. Ted Court has a sister suddenly. Like, like this kind of stuff was corporate synergy to a T. <laughs> so the character kind of took a direction in the comic books that aped what they were doing in the movie. And I hadn't seen the movie yet, and I was reading the comic book, and it's like, what are they doing? You know? And then I watched the movie and I'm like, oh, oh, that's what they're doing. <laughs> they're trying to imitate the movie. Like, usually you don't see such blatant corporate synergy in comic books anymore. You see a little bit, you know. Um, but this was really in your face. Um now, there are good things and bad things about uh, the changes that the movie made and then the comic book tried to pick up on, and we can get get into that. But the one thing I really did like is if you're gonna have uh, another one of these you know, fictional DC cities uh, introduced, it's good to make them distinctive, right? And this one was really distinctive. I really liked that neon-soaked production design, that like half a step away from Tron kind of thing almost. Mm-hmm. I really, really liked that. I thought it, it gave it a very unique vibe among superhero movies, um, which is something that superhero movies really need to work on is kind of finding their own visual identity a little bit more. So it's, as we said in the news segment, so it's not also flat and samey, right? And uh, I think they did a really good job with it here. I really, really overall like the production design here. Yeah, I think one of the potential drawbacks of this, and it did get lost a little bit of moving it from El Paso, is because Jaime's family is distinctly Mexican-American immigrants. And when you move it to a facsimile of Miami, you get, you know, Cuban vibes. And so I think one of the drawbacks of that is you have playing to the trope that Latinos and Latino culture is monolithic. And that can, that can be problematic. Um, You even have the lead Jenny Cord played by, I believe a Brazilian actress. And so I, while I appreciate like this was a very Latino movie, I think that shift can play to some of the, the tropes and some of that, I would have liked to them to play up to their specific heritage a little bit more to kind of make it stand out. Maybe they moved from El Paso to Palmyra City so Jaime could go to college. I would have liked a little bit more playing to those distinct um, nationalities. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally, I'll totally uh, agree with that. Plus, I think you know. Um... We don't always need the skyscraper cityscape stuff, you know. Yeah. Like I, I, the way the the way things worked in the comic book for for Blue Beetle, I thought was a really cool look. There was a lot of stuff where they were like out in sort of a deserty area too, you know, and and that would be. A and I think that can play part. to the the blue collar working class kind of message Dad was giving. Yes, yes, that you know that they're not you know surrounded by you know skyscrapers and wealth, you know. Yeah, I I like I like. The, the setting, I think, in the comic book a little better from a thematic standpoint. But I think visually they did something really interesting with the movie, so at least I can't fault it in that regard. It's almost Tron-like. Like, yeah, yeah. Like a like a light version, like a demo version of Tron. 
yeah, I, I just, I, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, Dayglow 80s or something. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it almost had like a period piece vibe to it in some places, you know? Yeah. I kind of liked it. I thought it was, it looked really cool. All right, Chris, so what was your, uh, your second like of the movie? Well, continuing with that, and I know I don't want to talk out of two sides of my mouth, but like one of the things that I kind of appreciated was like the poignant message about like gentrification and the underappreciation of diverse groups of people in the neighborhood and kind of pushing out and and things of that nature. And so if you do go for like that working class aesthetic, it did make sense in that regard that this new tech company is pushing out the blue collar people and kind of crapping on them. And so I think that was a really poignant and important message that working class immigrant families are being lost in the shuffle. And that's not something that is just Hollywood or thematic. That's a real life thing that that is a really important message to get across in a movie like this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit with, with, you know, the Miss Marvel thing. Um, but when you, when you start bringing in, you know, different perspectives and, and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds, you add a color to your superhero story that sets it apart from the others and, and gives it a, a more unique outlook and, and and that in itself, in in a market that people are already starting to claim is oversaturated, I think is super super important. So uh, what they what they did with that message here, I think, worked really well overall. All right, Dave, your um, next like for Blue Beetle. Well, you know, I can't pronounce a name uh, from another culture to save my life without embarrassing myself horribly. So I'm just going to say that the Jaime Reyes casting here is actually really really good. Uh, I think uh, the actor in question did a fantastic job with with the character, um, and I think hit really a sweet spot of of you know the comic book Jaime, which is a little a little younger, you know, and, and therefore plays a little younger. I mean, he's a he's um, uh, in the movie a recent college graduate, right? Um, and and in the comic book, he's a high school kid. So there is you know room there for um, in artistic interpretation in the acting. And I think that this was just a real good sweet spot for the character. Like I could recognize Jaime from the comic books uh, in the performance, but also something a little different, which uh, to a certain extent I think can be, you know, explained by the age. So I, I, I thought the performance here was really, really strong. We're gonna we're going to continue with the theme of professional wrestling. Tag me in, Dave. I got gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sholo. Okay, okay. My- can I, say, I was going to say, can I say at least I'm pretty sure that, that the, the, the name starts with the sh sound. I seem to have learned at least. I got much. it. Look at the doc right there. Sholo. Sholo. Yeah. Sholo Maridueña. Yeah. I think, and I'm combining my uh, third like in here because we have very similar mindset with this. So I think Sholo Maridueña is like a perfect kind of person to build this around if you can believe these insider reports or i think james gunn may have even confirmed this but they plan to work with him moving forward in this new universe and i think that is like easy money like that's one of the smartest things i'm not a karate kid nostalgic whatever so i've not seen cobra kai i've only seen the first one and that was like two years ago like 
that movie, that whole thing passed me by. Um, but I think he has the charisma. He's got the look. He's got the gravitas to be like a leading character moving forward. And I, I'm really excited to see him work with other characters of the DC universe moving forward. And I think, I think this is a home run if, if they do indeed keep working with him in the future. I think if anybody from the previous DC extended universe should stick around and have a, you know, a legitimate shot in this, you know, rebooted DC movie universe, it's, it's definitely him. I think there's there's charisma there. There's great comedic timing there. There's a lot of heart there. I think the performance, like I said, was really really good for the character. So um, I'm 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 all in on that. And talking about Karate Kid, let me just say, okay, that whole thing did not pass me up because I am, after all, a a, a, a man of a certain age. Um, but Karate Kid Part Two is my ride or die movie, man. Like uh, Karate Kid Part Two is like everything to me. Like that movie is my, I'm down and I need to watch a movie to pick me up. That's the movie I watch. And, and I think you would probably have a bit of appreciation for it too, because rather than doing the whole, we have to defend, you know, the title in the tournament stuff, they actually do really cool thing where, um, Miyagi has to go home, uh, to deal with family drama and Daniel goes with him. And so you get to be like right in the thick in Okinawa and everything. And it's it's really, really cool. Like I, I vastly prefer it over the other two Karate Kid movies. I think it's really solid. And correct me if I'm wrong, the third one we don't talk about, right? The third one we don't talk about and the fourth one we don't talk about much. And uh, the remake we <laughs> only sometimes talk about. Like it's, it's, it's a very complicated situation. The first one is a classic of, of 80s schmaltz. But for me, I think the second one, just from a pure storytelling perspective, is the superior movie. I'm, I'm a big fan of the second one. It's funny how, how, how much five years can make a difference um, in our age gap. Because you see Pat Morita and you say Mr. Miyagi. I see Grandpa from Three Ninjas. So yeah. like I still, yeah. have, still have the appreciation, but that's, that's Grandpa. And those movies, oh my God. I, I've, whew, that was everything. Like... It took like what I enjoyed of of Home Alone is like the kids fighting back. But then you add ninjas to it. And I was like, all right, buckle up. Let's go. <laughs> um, so I colored outside the lines here, Dave. So we are left with your final like of this film. I think one of the biggest problems you run into in um, adaptations of DC media is that they missed a point on one thing that makes... I think DC distinctive from Marvel in some respects, and that's legacy. Um, we always talk about how you know things need to progress and move forward more in comic books, but it it does somewhat in DC sometimes. You know, um, there's a big undercurrent of legacy of the mantle getting handed off, of you know sidekicks growing up. Those sorts of things occur quite a bit, actually. And it's one of the things that I do appreciate. It's incredibly slow growth, but there's actually some growth sometimes in DC. And so if you look at the Blue Beetle character, there have been now three Blue Beetles overall. Um, the first being Dan Garrett, the second Ted Cord, um, uh, and then finally Jaime Reyes. Of course, Dan Garrett had the Scarab, but he didn't know what it was. And uh, you know they retconned in that he basically... Uh, didn't was was able to only access a fraction of its power. Um, Ted never had it. He's more like a Batman character, a, a rich eccentric guy that wants to help people. You know, minus minus the trauma 
uh, and gravelly voice. Um, and then you have Jaime who gets full access of the of the actual scarab. And so when when they announced this movie, my instinct was that they were probably going to go ahead and um, and just you know run with this is the Blue Beetle, and there were no Blue Beetles before him because that's what most you know of these of these adaptations do. They don't really lean into the idea that anything came before because. I don't know why. I think they just feel like they need to they need to start at the zero point. And I always thought legacy kind of, you know, makes the world feel more lived in. But that's just me. And so the fact that we got to actually see, um, you know, the Blue Beetles layer and there's a Ted Court Blue Beetle costume and a Dan Garrett Blue Beetle costume sitting there. And the court name is is prominent in the movie and Dan Garrett gets name dropped. And then we got to even see the bug ship of all things. Which is such a weird design, but so distinctive and 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 you know so closely associated with with the Ted Court character, I, you know, as a long term comic book fan, I found that incredibly pleasing that we had a movie that does not in you know avoid the idea of legacy for a change, because those, those a lot of those DC you know adaptations tend to. So I'm, I was a big fan of just leaning into the comic book history of the character and the legacy of the character a little bit. I thought that was very cool. And I think that might be my greatest frustration with DC movies. And one of the reasons why it's so hamstrung by this start, stop, start, stop nature over the past 20 plus years. Um, Because how did we have three Batman films with no Robin and four now the Batman? How? Don't 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 even like that is one of the greatest frustrations to me as a fan of the comic books. You know, that's how that's why I ride for Batman forever. I will forever go up for that film. Batman and Robin, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't need uh, laundry kung fu necessarily, but um, the fact that they actually tried to pull off Robin, I thought was was you know solid effort for the time. Um, but I think they figured out how to do so many weird things in comic books and pull them off believably. If you can pull off a talking raccoon in a movie, then you can pull off Robin as a sidekick to Batman. Um, and I'm I'm waiting, you know, with bated breath to get a good adaptation of Robin uh, in Dave, live action. Dave, you know, Marvel did it with Kamala and Carol in just a few years of time. Like, what are we doing? I I I just don't I just don't know. And the discourse around this online is so ridiculous, you know? Like, oh, you know, Batman would never take a kid out there and blah 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 and, and the world is too dark for like that's the point, you know? Like is is such so disingenuous to just make this this stance against against Robin generally, you know? To the point where Zack Snyder was like even yeah 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 Dick Grayson's did. You know, like uh, let's just gloss over that. You know, it, it's 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 getting kind of silly at this point. Like why are we mythologizing Bruce Wayne like he's he's this ineffable character? That's the one I'm over. Like he's human. Like we got to stop cre- making him this deity. I agree. And I and I totally think that Robin can work on the big screen. Period. Like I really Absolutely. believe that. All right, let's get into some dislikes there, Chris. What was a stinker here? I don't know if it was a stinker, and I've enjoyed Susan Sarandon films before, and I she just seems so out of place. Um, and not because she's the only white lady <laughs> in this movie, but the she, to- the token cracker. <laughs> right. And she just and there are some times where she's like, I don't know if it's overacting 
but like she just seems like a miscast here and no disrespect i mean like she's done so many great things in in movies and stuff but like i just feel like she's out of place and i can't quite articulate why i think she's i think her acting is like she's in a different movie it's like because she's she's so isolated away from like the family stuff and and that drama and 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 Jaime as a character there's not a lot of interactions there you know she's like in her own movie over here so every time it cuts to her it's like it's a whole different movie you know what I mean um and I don't think you know I think that Susan Sarandon's a fantastic actress but I think she wasn't able to really calibrate her performance tonally to the rest of the movie because she was not really in those scenes so she didn't really know what the tone was i think in those scenes if if you if you get what i'm saying and and so it, yeah there's definitely a dissonance there in in her performance and her presence I, I i will agree with that absolutely all right so it's been a hot minute since i read that initial uh rogers giffen run dave you're gonna have to jog my memory here uh, so um my, my big thing as far as dislikes go, the first thing that I noted is that the supporting cast uh, from the original run is kind of missing, um, and and I'm and I found myself really missing them. Um, and I will note three characters in particular here uh, that I thought you know left sort of a gap in, in this story. Uh, the first uh, is is Paco, his best friend. Uh, I thought that he um, you know was a was an interesting. Um, an interesting connection for Jaime outside of his family that was still felt like family. You know what I mean? Like that tight sort of friendship. Um, I really missed Brenda as well. Uh, I thought that, uh, that, that Brenda was a really interesting character because of her family connection to like the criminal underworld and stuff and how she's not really aware of that. And, and the kind of um, conflict that is Jenny, is Jenny a substitute for that then? I, I I think that Jenny is a, is a is a substitute for Brenda, and I think and I think Paco as a character was just really an oddball in a lot of in a lot of his appearances. So I think to a certain extent, actually, the George Lopez character is an attempt to to have a Paco like character in there, but something that's more tailored to to George Lopez as an actor, I guess, right? But the thing that that bothered me the most, and I think that the thing that would have probably solved the Susan Sarandon thing, is that I think that she's a replacement for La Dama, uh, Brenda's aunt, and 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 that that uh, that crime lord uh, that that Jaime you know is bumping heads with the whole time. That that sort of thing was really missed. I didn't really enjoy everything being tied into Ted Cord, and I'll get into that a little bit. But like now, suddenly Ted Cord has a sister. Now suddenly Ted Cord has a daughter, you know, and it's 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 very weird, you know, especially if you know the the comic book Ted Cord. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to picture him, you know, getting married and having kids, you know, just because he's just such a he's a he's he's a dork man. Like he's so <laughs> he's so he's so in his little in his little beetle cave and 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 getting up to no good with Booster Gold. It's, it's I was just going to say him. just from what you've told me he's too obsessed with Booster Gold to get married. <laughs> yeah, I'm sometimes I sometimes wonder. <laughs> yeah. But uh but yeah, it's just it's and and then the sister thing and like he and it also uh, you know, I'll get into the Ted Cord of it in a little bit. Uh but I do want to just say that Paco, Brenda, Ladama, I think are the actual superior characters compared to the replacements that were created for this. Um, and I think it was it was cheap writing, 
to just say, okay, everybody's a cord, you know, that is not part of, of, of Jaime's family, because that makes it easier. And I think it didn't need to be easy, right? You can have, you can have cord industries, right? And you can have Ted Cord vanished, and you can have, you know, this crime lord, Ladama, finding out that there's this weapon there and she wants to use it. And, and you know, you can still have Jaime gets a hold of this thing while he's applying for an internship at Ted, at Court Industries or something. And then now suddenly this crime lady's after her, you know? Like it would have worked perfectly fine. And you would still have Brenda there for that familial connection between the main villain and one of the heroes. And it's not all just like, oh, everybody's related. You know what I mean? It's just... I, I, it. I I just prefer the the original characters, I guess, as opposed to the stand-ins for them in this story. It feels, in a way, like this is a fast food version of the Blue Beetle and the Jaime Reyes story, where things are getting combined, like it's an over-synthesization of of characters and themes, and here's the end product. And and overall, like it's an enjoyable thing, but there are things that you're sacrificing um, by by viewing this film uh, and there are things that are lost and you know what i miss the most i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i know that he's going through a renaissance right now and he's been reinvented for this new dc universe and everything and he's back wearing the chrome calzone and all that but i miss that first runs version of peacemaker yeah he this old grumpy former hero that is trying to take jaime under his wing and teach him a little bit how to take care of himself I miss that now, character. Let's 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 hold out hope that could still possibly happen. It would be a very different context, considering uh, you know the, the interpretation of Peacemaker that we have these days. You know, but yeah, I, I miss the supporting cast. All right, what was your uh, what was your second dislike of the movie? I think it was a little cheesy. Uh, it was a little little corny, um, and and that can be that can be the case sometimes when you're going for that family heavy aspect. Uh, there can be a cornball effect. Um, some of the writing could have been a little bit better. Um, nothing. This this is more of a nitpick than anything. I, it didn't take me out of the film, but it, it seemed a little bit a little bit cheesy. Yeah, it, it was a Gouda kind of film, right? Yeah, it was all about that mozzarella. It was uh, it's a it's a cheesy crust. Yeah cheese stuffed uh and yeah it really depends on personal preference i don't mind some cheese in 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 my movies occasionally if it's if it's done fairly well i don't think it was horribly offensive here but yeah the the movie does have a cheesy streak all right dave you've uh teased at this one and i'm very excited to get into your second dislike yeah so i'm a big ted court fan um I, i i like the character i like his friendship with booster gold um I also like that he's, you know, of that Justice League International era, the Bwahaha era, that's a little more tongue-in-cheek and a little more lighthearted. I just, I like that for the character. And to a certain extent, I think they try to capture that a little bit uh, with the with the exchange about Batman. Like, he, you know, he's kind of like Batman. No, Batman's a fascist. Like, you know, <laughs> Blue, Blue, Blue Beetle had a sense of humor, you know. Um, that's accurate, yeah. But then there's a lot about about this version of of Ted that kind of, sucks and i just don't understand why those particular decisions were made i mean i know they were desperate to try to figure out a way for susan sarandon to be a sister and be relevant and all this but my understanding always was in the comic books that ted court was very much a self-made man you know not unlike bruce wayne who came you know is, is old money right uh ted court is is an inventor right and he he invented a bunch of stuff and built his company from there but here he had nothing to do with the company 
right? It was his grandfather and his sister that built the company. And then for some reason, when the grandfather died, he left the company to, to Ted instead of the sister. Why did we need that? Like, I, I don't quite understand why we needed to take this character that doesn't even really make an in-person appearance and, and sort of diminish his comic book history like that. Like, that that's what's really cool about the Blue Beetle. Like, the bug ship, for example, he built the bug ship. That's his, you know, ship. That's his invention. He built that thing, you know? A lot of the gadgets that, that he fought with, he invented himself, you know? He's, he's that kind of guy. And then just the whole, he disappeared and he's an absent father and the girl had... Like, is any superhero allowed to just be a good dad? Like, do they all have to just be crappy parents all the time? Like, is... is it, it was very much like we want to play with the Ted Cord name, but not with Ted Cord. So we're going to have this sister, which doesn't exist in the comic books until that miniseries that was based basically on the movie, and this daughter that's, at, as far as I know, still doesn't exist in the comic books. Um, so we can play with the Ted Cord name and pay lip service to that, but we're not actually going to portray Ted Cord the way Ted Cord was. And I thought that was a weird choice to make here. It would have been again. Going back to my previous point, I think it would have been almost better just to say that Ted Cord was the Blue Beetle. He disappeared, and then have the characters external to the company and the and the Cord family trying to get what's there. You know, a little bit a little bit of heist element or something to it in the beginning there or something like that. Um, because I, I don't think Ted Cord comes out of this l- looking particularly good as a character, Chris. I think it's odd that they completely excluded him from the film. That was one of my dislikes, and I, I'm just going to tack it on here. Is like we could have had, and maybe I missed it, but like an end credit scene where he's hinted at, or they find there him, is, or there is there's a mid, there's a, there's a mid credit scene where there's like a voice message coming through in that in that Beetle headquarters, and it's like something like "I'm still alive" or something like that. I was definitely a tease for a potential sequel, maybe, but yeah, but yeah it's. There was not enough there. I'm I'm not sure why they chose to completely remove him. I think like halfway through the film, they could have found him or something. It just felt like you're doing a lot of heavy lifting when he's completely absent from the film. Um, and I think it would have been additive to have him. I think, I don't know, maybe it would have been too much. Long, it would have added too much runtime to the film or whatever, but it, it felt really weird. All right, Chris. So that brings us to your final dislike of the movie. Listen, as a What We Do in the Shadows fan, I was so happy to see Harvey Guillen, uh, Guillermo, but then he was completely just abused and misused. And so I just need justice for Harvey Guillen because he's an incredible, incredible actor and they just murked him and I'm not happy about it. Yeah, I think that that's that's probably fair, man. Um, yeah. I will agree with that point. Absolutely. All right, Dave, uh, we're leaning into your expertise here again for your final dislike. Okay. So uh, my expertise, I don't know about that. I'm just a big fan of this whole, you know, comic book franchise. But I remember the first like 25 issues of Jaime Reyes' original run was all about, in, in, in a way, him trying to figure out the Scarab, right? And And the relationship between him and the Scarab. And, you know, it, like in the movie, there's times where the Scarab just kind of takes over. And then there are times where Jaime is able to basically talk the Scarab down. Um, and the Scarab um, is very responsive in the movie to him right away, right? 
um, where he says, "I'm not a killer," and and the scarab is like, "Yeah, yeah, command accepted." And in in the in the comic book, the scarab was much more aggressive and constantly wanted to use lethal methods. And Jaime had to basically try to wrestle the scarab constantly for control and to, and to stop it from going too far. Almost like a venom type of relationship. That's immediately what it made me think of. And what was really cool to me with all of that is that over the course of those issues, the the scarab basically learned morality from Jaime. Right? And so by the end, they're on the same page. At the end of that first like twenty-five issue story, they're on the same page. And there is a conscious choice because like at the end they get separated, right? And Jaime calls for the scarab and the scarab comes to him again, right? And they and they they make a conscious decision that they're a team now, they're on the same page. And that is probably one of the few moments in my entire life where I read a comic book and like literally threw the comic in the air and cheered out loud. It's such a perfect, you know, climax to the constant struggle of these two char- of these two characters leading to that moment, right? And I thought if they would have leaned a little bit into an initial hostile relationship between the two and then we we also get more of an exploration of Jaime as a person I mean he's, he repeatedly says I'm not a killer I'm not a killer but there's there's more to it with that like there's very much Jaime teaching the scarab how to be a how to be a moral being and I think that that was sort of missing here and and that's probably one of my favorite things of the whole blue beetle thing also uh nitpick but I don't I didn't think we needed to understand the scarab we didn't understand the scarab in the comic either. We just got like symbols floating in the air. Yeah, basically say the it's hieroglyphics kind or of alien, alien language. language. Yeah. Yes. And then Jaime is the only one that can actually not just hear, but also understand. So we as the reader are left in the dark. So some of their exchanges become very clever and funny because we're getting only like half the conversation and we have to sort of infer what the scarab is actually saying. Um and that and that leads to some really fun moments too. And I thought that was sort of flattened out here. So the whole relationship between Jaime and the Scarab, I think, was much flatter here and less interesting than it was in the comic book. Yeah, and I think this is another symptom of the oversimplification for like general audiences. It came across as very Iron Manny and Jarvis. Like it came across as very like Venom, like I said. Like I said, or even um, Spider-Man Homecoming with like, what was it? The instant kill mode or something like that, where yes, exactly. it was very almost like a karaoke version of that. And it, it wasn't distinct enough. And I think while you have Carol G, you have a star, you know, um, you know, in the voice role of that, I think it would have been fun to go the route that you did, the, the route that you laid out. Um, and uh, I think it would have made for much more. We're already fans of Cholo Maradueña in the role, and I think that would have made him stand out even more. All right, so grade time, Chris. What kind of grade would you give Blue Beetle? So I watched this on a flight, and I was finally getting... I had some travel delays, and so this was on my way home. I was finally getting to come home, and so I was kind of on a high. I texted you very passionately, Um but now kind of laying it out like this, my excitement has tempered a little bit, but still, this is, this is a really fun movie. I'm I'm going B plus. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a solid B. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a very good 
um, first effort of trying to adapt that character and that situation to live action. I would have high hopes for a sequel <laughs> if that was in the cards, although it's kind of hard telling what they're going to do with the character moving forward. Um, given this the whole is still WB. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's where we're at. But I would have high hopes, you know, an introduction of Ted Cord. And then, of course, they didn't change. That was one of my biggest concerns is that they would change the uh, the Scarab to be like, you know, a Ted Cord invention or something rather than being alien. They kept that in place. So a sequel could have, you know, brought the reach in, which I think would have been a real place for that Scarab uh, Jaime relationship to shine because. You know, in the comics, the Scarab kind of has to make that decision to turn against its own creators and, and its own people and, and stick with Jaime. And that that's pretty dramatic stuff. So I think there's a ton of potential for a sequel. It's a it's a solid B movie. It didn't set my world on fire, but I wasn't bored either. It was, it's very good, actually. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's it for our Byword Big Talk. What did you think of the Blue Beetle? Find us on social media and let us know. You can find us wherever there is a social media platform at Nerd by Word or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Nerd Commendation Time. All right, ladies and gents, we're back and it's time for everybody's favorite segment where we recommend some nerdy media to you. It is called... All right, so uh, I actually have a little bit of experience with this one and I'm very interested to hear your nerd commendation, Chris. What are you nerd commending this week? Well, your stress levels are probably up just thinking about this game. But uh, yep. I have I have been playing uh, my Switch OLED, uh, trying to get my money's worth now that uh, I just bought this, and now the Switch 2 is on the horizon. But um, I'm a sucker for these digital game sales, and I got the Overcooked uh, game for 4 bucks on the... Um, the e-web store and um it's 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 fun to like unwind uh but at the same time it's just incredibly stressful but um once you get the hang of it you, you get used to it so if you've ever played something like diner dash um like on the on the browser or maybe on pc this will this will be very much that on steroids and so you are a little chef and you're chopping up vegetables, you're chopping up ingredients, you're cooking and it's a very stringent timer. And, um, but this is just a fun way to unwind. I highly recommend having a second person to help you co-op this because playing it by yourself can be a tall order, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And for three, four bucks on a digital sale, you can't beat it. Um, I'm looking forward to, to finishing this one up and, and go, moving on to Overcook 2 as well. Yeah, so uh, I've played this game, and uh, regrettably, I had not a very good time with it because I tried to play it with somebody else. <laughs> and <laughs> oh. it, it turns out that I'm a decent team player, but for some reason, it never cl- quite clicked uh, with this game. Like It was just an unholy, uncoordinated mess, and I got really frustrated trying to play with somebody uh, else and ultimately kind of slowly backed away from the game <laughs> i will say i think it's it's a lot of fun graphically and gameplay wise it's it's a solid game and if you uh if you have somebody who can play it with that's not going to infuriate you to no end <laughs> then uh that this is definitely a game to play but uh beware 
Um, if you think you want to throw a controller, sometimes when you're playing Mario Kart against somebody, play Overcooked with somebody. Listen, um, let's let's hope uh, attorneys were not on the phone. <laughs> 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 All right, Dave, what's your nerd commendation for this week? I'm going back to the 90s. As you are wont to do. As I want to do. So uh, 94, I think, precisely, is when I first got a hold of this book, 94, 95, in German translation. Uh, it's called The Nitpicker's Guide for Classic Trekkers, and it was uh, written by Phil Ferrand. Um, it's unauthorized uh, uh, sort of exploration of the classic Star Trek series. And Ferrand has written some for, I think, Next Generation as well. I don't know if he ever got the DS9. I think the, the fad fizzled out after a few volumes, so... Um, there's nothing to nitpick about that series though yeah there's that right but i actually will tell you that as a fan of the original star trek show uh the classic trekker volume is probably my favorite i read it front to back several times and i very recently found in a used bookstore an old hardback edition of the movie of the of the book and i was just reread it and uh and yeah it, it, it still holds up so basically what it does is it goes through uh, the classic series, including the unaired pilot, The Cage, as well as all uh, the classic uh, movies featuring, you know, Kirk, Spock, Scotty, and all those characters. Um, and for each episode or movie, uh, it gives you a plot synopsis and then goes into uh, the author's ruminations, just general thoughts about the episode. And then the real fun starts. You get... Uh, plot oversights, things that don't didn't make sense plot-wise in the story. Um, changed premises, where they talk about how something is inconsistent from one episode to another, where they establish something about Vulcans in one episode and then go in a completely dis- different direction after that. Uh, equipment oddities, uh, where stuff, uh, technology is being used in a way that is inconsistent with, with uh, previous episodes. Uh, continuity and production problems, anything from a, a you can see a a production helper or a boom mic in the back to uh, any some anything like that uh, mishaps with the special effects. Uh, then it all also each episode has some trivia associated with it, um, and then goes into uh, you know how the credits were uh, put together for that particular episode because each one had like in the old show different uh, stills from different episodes, and so it's like you know um a companion to an old friend you know like i've i've watched the original star trek show many many times um and this always kind of makes me revisit it and kind of look at it with fresh eyes and be like ah you know they they did kind of mess up here oh that is a really interesting inconsistency that they created here and and here is an alternate version of what this aspect of vulcan society could have been like before they decided to do it this way um so is it nitpicky? Well, absolutely it is. It's in the title. It's the nitpicker's guide, right? Um, but at the same time, it's it's done with a lot of love, too, for Star Trek and for the franchise. It's never mean-spirited or disrespectful or anything like that. It's always uh, playful and clever and, and, and most of all, um, appreciates Star Trek for what it is. And and for that, I absolutely nerd commend it. Uh, I think you can, you can get... Um, you can get a Kindle edition these days, and I think it's actually still in print in paperback, uh, which is quite a feat, all things considered, how, how long this book has been out. Um, but it's still out there and, and easily found, so if you've not read it, I highly recommend it. I bet this was chicken soup for your detail-oriented soul. <laughs> Very much so. It's, it's, it's definitely in the, in the sweet spot of my personal psychology. <laughs> 
This is so INTJ coded. Um, yeah, so I'm definitely gonna have to check this one out because, like, as I've talked about before, like watching old episodes of the original series to help me fall asleep and stuff. Like, it's it's deeply embedded in there. And dude, I just looked. There is a Deep Space Nine one. Okay. And I have I've never read it. Um, and 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 now I I wanna. I, I really want it, so I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> that go sounds like a future and, episode. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have to. Yeah, and there's a Kindle edition. I might have to just go ahead and download this sucker and check it out. DS9, Nitpicker's Guide. Holy crap! I'm here for it. <laughs> that sounds like an episode. All righty. Well, there you have it, folks. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you just heard, get on your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Our podcast is available wherever podcasts can be found. And, of course, our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com, where you should also stop by and read some of our written content, as both Chris and I are leaning heavily into reviewing various nerdy content, not just on here on the podcast, but also in writing these days. And as always, you can find us on social media across all platforms at Nerd by Word. You can find us individually, that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris on Twix. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.